Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode has been on the podcast before. A couple of years ago, we chatted about her novel, Dual Citizens. And this year, I had the chance to talk with her about her short story collection, We Want What We Want. Here she is to introduce herself. My name is Alex Olin. I'm a fiction writer. <laughs> Alex's book, We Want What We Want, was a finalist for the 2022 Athel Wilson Fiction Prize. In our conversation, Alex talks a bit about how she puts a short story collection together and why the world we live in now needs new ways to tell stories. Alex starts our conversation with a reading from We Want What We Want. This story is called FMK. We'd been to this funeral home twice before, at least I think we had. I guess it sounds heartless, but they blend together with their signs calligraphied with the family name, the floral arrangements and folded programs, the standard chairs in the standard rows. Even the silence feels uniform in these places. They must all use the same soundproofing. I followed Kat inside, making intermittent eye contact with strangers and smiling a closed-mouthed half-smile, the facial expression that is also uniform at funerals. Mr. Braverman's service was standing room only, and we took positions at the back. It was nice to see an overflowing crowd. I hate the funerals with just a few souls huddled in their misery like animals outside in a storm. Here, I saw little kids dressed up and fidgeting in the second row. Some people don't like children at a service, but I think it helps everyone to remember the promise of youth in the world. I don't know what it's like for the kids. An elderly woman in pearls entered the room, and from the way heads swiveled in her direction, I took her to be Mrs. Braverman. Her clothes, though elegant, looked at least a size too large, bought for the woman she used to be. Her eyes were hooded and vacant until they lit on Cat, who stepped forward to meet her. They hugged for a long time. Thank you for being here, Mrs. Braverman said as they let go, and Cat said, of course. The widow's eyes grazed across me, and Cat added, this is my friend Trish. Mrs. Braverman bobbed her head and moved on. I didn't bother to tell her I was sorry for her loss. My presence didn't matter, and neither would my words. We came for the hug between her and Kat, who had located Mr. Braverman's most accommodating vein and rubbed his necrotic feet and emptied his catheter bag and washed his wasted body and left the imprint of Mrs. Braverman's lipstick kiss on his cheek when he died. Kat was here for Mrs. Braverman. I was here for Kat. The first time I met Kat, she was out with her work friends at the Red Sombrero, and they were all drunk off their asses. I was with my work friends, too, but we were admin assistants, too poverty-stricken and subservient to cause much of a ruckus. If one of us spilled beer on the table, another would rush to wipe it up. I'd been at the job a month and wanted desperately to be promoted, provided I didn't die of boredom first. I'd spent my twenties playing in a band with nothing to show for it, and now I wanted a steady income and benefits. I wanted to buy a condo and adopt a dog. Sleeping in a real bed night after night still seemed like a luxury to me, 
a dangling prize that could be snatched away at any time. Nonetheless, I couldn't help but turn my head when I heard those women whooping and hollering on the other side of the bar. They were playing the most reckless and violent game of darts I'd ever seen. Darts bombed the wall below the target. One woman took a hit to the thigh, howling with pain as the others only shrieked with laughter. When our waitress, with whom I'd been low-key flirting, brought our second round, I tried to offer her some sympathy. Rough customers over there? She glanced over, shrugged. Every Friday they tear the place up. You can't say anything to them, though. Why not? Because of where they work. She jerked her head to the side, up the street. You know they have to cut loose. I didn't know what she meant. This wasn't my neighborhood. But Molly, who sat in the cubicle three down from mine, was nodding vigorously. Makes sense, she said. What makes sense, I said. Molly dropped her voice. Hospice. A dart sailed across the bar and landed near my shoe. I picked it up and carried it over. You have a license for this thing? I said. The nurses were busy yelling at each other about what shitty throwers they were, and not one of them acknowledged me or took the dart back. I lingered there like an idiot. Finally, one of them turned and said, Oh, shit, sorry, and grabbed it, but I held on. She was wearing dark blue scrubs with a long-sleeved white t-shirt underneath and shiny white soccer shoes, and her long, straight black hair was also shiny. In my memory, all of her was gleaming. She tried to take the dart from me, and I wouldn't give it until she told me her name. When I let go, my palm was pricked with blood. We live together now in Kat's condo with a dachshund named Murray who has hip dysplasia and a terrible personality and whose presence in our lives is my greatest regret. I know I'm lucky to have such a manageable regret. I'm lucky in a lot of ways. I'll stop there. Thank I have an icebreaker question uh, this season, and it is, if you could only read one book or watch one TV show for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? <laughs> That's such a hard question. <laughs> wow. One book. Uh... I mean, we have gotten things like the collected works of William Shakespeare, so, it, mm. you know... Cheaters have been pushed. (laughs) (laughs) A whole season long argument. Exactly. (laughs) Oh boy, I don't know. Um, I'm going to go for a TV show because it's too hard to um, to pick a novel. I'm actually a big rewatcher of of TV shows. I don't know why. There's just a real comfort in it. So I am going to pick my most recent constant rewatching, which is the TV show Community. I have, uh, I discovered it during the pandemic. I think it's really funny and smart. And I'm not going to hold it up as like the most uh, long lasting work of art or anything. But I think it is beautifully written in a comedic sense and um, incredibly silly. And in the long term, the silliness may be the thing that I most need to survive. We all need some of that, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, I wanted to start by asking you a bit about the process of how We Want What We Want came together. Because when I was at the Vancouver Writers Fest recently, I heard Kim Fu talking about her collection of short stories. And I was really interested to hear that they were very much of a time. And so I wondered if these were stories you were working on for this specific collection or were they stuff you kind of already had and then filled it in? 
Yeah, I don't tend to work uh, intentionally toward the idea of a collection. That's just not um, my usual uh, process. Uh, I think part of what I really enjoy about working in the short story form is the idea that it's a one-off. And for me, there's something about taking the pressure off yourself and divorcing it from the idea of uh, a book that I find really freeing. And um, it helps me to experiment and, and take risks and really enjoy writing stories. So I tend to write, I am, I'm always thinking of stories. It's my natural form. I write them all the time. And then when the time comes to think about a collection, I go through quite a large amount of material that I have generated over a period of years, in this case, probably around five years. And I look for threads and commonalities, um, a feeling of relatedness, you know, the idea that these stories might be kind of cousins or uh, in the same family tree. In what ways do the stories speak to one another? And then there's other work that I've written during that time, other stories that just don't fit in this particular book. They're about something different. They're different in tone or in manner of execution or sometimes in length. So it's a kind of winnowing process for me. And then ideally, I'm left with a collection that even though I I didn't explicitly set out to have it be about a particular set of themes or or subject matter. Somehow it does cohere as a book length work. Yeah. What are some of the the challenges and joys of working on short fi fiction versus a novel? I mean, for me, it's almost all joys. I really love the short story form. Uh, I I love the um, compression of it, and I love how the structure feels very. Um, there's a lot of unpredictability in the structure of a short story to me. I can start out at the beginning of a short story and have no idea where it's going to end up. And I have that experience both as a reader and as a writer. And I really enjoy that. I think to write a novel without any idea of where it's going to end up is is really um, almost impossible. It's just you, you have to have like a stronger kind of scaffolding. Uh, so for me, what I really appreciate um, about the short story form is the ability to take a sudden detour and hopefully surprise the reader, but in a way that feels nonetheless inevitable by the time you get to the end, right? That's the quality I'm always going for is surprise, but inevitability that are um, combined together. And then in terms of challenges, I mean, I do think it's quite a hard form. Like I write a lot of stories that just don't, even after I revise and tinker with them, they don't feel quite right or they don't ever um, come off because there is more pressure on the language within that more contained space. Uh, in a novel, I think there can be a little more room for digression or um, bagginess or a few slow spaces in a short story. You know, every sentence has to sing, every sentence has to, has to belong, but... Again, for me, that's a kind of joyous challenge to work on. It also seems in a short story, there's a lot more trust put on the reader because you are working with almost like poets who are working with a finite amount of words and sentences. It, the same almost applies with a short story where you have to leave space and hope that the reader will will step in there and fill in the blanks. Yeah, I do think a short story functions almost more like a poem or a song. Um, than it does like a novel, even though both are prose narrative forms. Um, a short story is not just a novel in miniature. And it does lend itself to that kind of openness and mystery that you're talking about. There's 
room that is left for the reader to to make meaning. Um, and I I know that for me as a reader, I I really strongly dislike uh, the experience of being sort of hit over the head with a message or a meaning. I don't like it when I get to the end and there's like a a little in case you didn't understand what the story is about. You know, here's the moral of the of the story or or of the fable. So I certainly. Um, I certainly leave that gap or space for the reader. And, and sometimes I do get feedback from people who are like, I would, I would like more. So maybe I'm too, you know, withholding of, of things, but I know that for myself, I enjoy that feeling of like, here's a moment in time or a moment in a character's life. And you can decide what to make of it. Having now spent this, uh, ex- this, you know, few pages experiencing it with them. Yeah. The other thing I enjoyed so much about the stories is this kind of, I had a, a writing instructor who used to talk about writing scenes like going to a party when you show up late and leave early. And <laughs> and so many of the short stories, you're kind of just dropped into this situation and it takes a minute to get your bearings. But once you're there, it's so interesting. And and I guess that's another thing that you applies so well to short fiction is that you you don't have time for the setup. You have to just get there and get out yeah no throat clearing yeah that's that's for sure and when uh when i read people's work often that's uh something that we talk a lot about in class is that the first page and a half of a short story is often um important for the writer to find their way into the story but it's not actually important to the story once it's finished right so uh, a really helpful thing that you can do to your work uh, a lot of times is um just remove that first page and you'd be surprised uh how well your story can still function yeah, yeah. when i spoke to you about dual citizens i i remember we talked about the the sister relationships and and in the collection, it seems like there's also this, there's sisters, but there's also this kind of exploration of, of female friendships. And I'm always really interested in those stories because I think female friendships have been given a bad rap for, <laughs> for through pop culture and other things. But I, I really think like your stories kind of explore the nuances of female friendships. And I wondered... Uh, if that's something that you're intentionally exploring in your work and why you find them so interesting to write about. Yeah, this is definitely one of the patterns that I began to notice sort of part of the way the way through is the idea of female dyads. Um, that's how I started thinking of them in my mind, like groups of two, some, they could be sisters, they could be people who work together, they could be friends. But the kind of intense, uh, almost kinetic influence that one woman can have on on another. And certainly I was also exploring that in in dual citizens through sisters. But that's a particular kind of you know relationship from childhood to adulthood. And there are all kinds of other ways in which um, I think that women kind of either form their identities or you sort of figure out who you are or who you want to be in a relational way, right? Like I am like this other person or I am not like this other person. Person and I'm drawn to them for um, for those reasons. And I think, you know, I agree with you that a lot of the ways that female um, friendships are represented in, you know, film or TV can be quite reductive, uh, can be very limited in terms of the way that, it's, you know, it's oftentimes there's like a competitive nature, or perhaps it's just, you know, if you're thinking about the Bechtel test, it's like two women who, you know, are just talking about their romantic relationships, but it's so much more like complex and sticky and uh, physical at times, certainly emotional, often intellectual, all these things, you know, there's an intensity to a lot of these relationships that, you know, often rivals or or exceeds the 
romantic relationships that people, you know, might have. So I think that there is a sort of endless fascination in, uh, in working through these, these relationships and talking about the importance that they can have in, in people's lives. I don't know, this is a digression, but I just read this great memoir called Stay True. Do you know this book by, yeah. by Hua Su? It's a, it's a memoir by a writer for the New Yorker and it's a, um, kind of talking about the writer in his, uh, college days and his group of friends and how everything at that time feels so intense. And as you're trying to figure out who you are, not just intrinsically to yourself, but who you are in the world. And um, it's uh, in some ways about one particular friend who uh, who stayed with him for for various uh, reasons. Anyway, that's a that's a male friendship. But I, I absolutely think that there are similar kind of movements and grasping for meaning that's happening through the female duos in my stories, for sure. Yeah. I mean, friendships overall are just such I mean, relationships are such interesting fodder for stories, but but even in in male friendships, I I'm always interested in them as well because there has been a similar thing where men are are not meant to be friends in an intimate way without right. it being labeled as as gay and uh, you know it's right. the similar trouble exists in and men trying to get close as women do because women yeah it's hard to trust women apparently because we've been told to be competitive and right. uh, they might steal your boyfriends or whatever <laughs> yeah 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 exactly yeah it's it's interesting that you um you know talked about the you know creating our identity because that was another thing that came up for me as I was reading it in the kind of how we see ourselves but also how we see ourselves through other people. Mm -hmm. um, and I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit, about that kind of, there's a real search for identity in and self in a lot of these stories. And whether it's, you know, looking through for our identity in other people, family or our, our intimate partners. But yeah, it seems like all of these characters were really searching for some part of themselves through these stories. Yeah, something I've been thinking about uh, a lot lately is the question of uh, what it means to come of age. Like, I think there's a sort of narrative idea that we come of age once, like from childhood to adulthood, and then you're done. <laughs> like, oh, I'm a grown up and I know who I am and I've chosen my whatever, you know, my city, my profession, my my family, my, you know, whatever it is. And I've been thinking a lot about the extent to which that is not true and how we are all sort of endlessly and incessantly coming of age, coming into a different version of ourselves as we move through different stages of life. And it's not necessarily a simple process or just one of garnering greater wisdom or maturity. In fact, a lot of times it's incredibly messy and full of mistakes and wrong turns and figuring out that where you are in your life is not making you happy. And then what do you do with that knowledge? And if you decide to change things, um, for whom are you making that change? And at what cost? So all of that, like incredibly messy, shaggy area of um, uh, wanting to be true to yourself, whatever that means, wanting to be happy, whatever that means, these are all very, you know, contested and existential ideas. And that's a good space uh, for fiction to enter, because there's a lot of stories to tell there. Yeah. 
Well, and, and also the, there's like an element of grief that comes up with that coming of age, because I think something happens. I, I've seen people go through this where, you know, some you, something happens in your life and the life that you thought you were had and which was so stable and seemed so secure changes mm-hmm. and and you're left kind of grappling with what comes next and and again grief seems like a common thread through many of the stories whether it's actual loss uh, of of a person or just grief of a circumstance in life yeah and just the grief of instability right i mean everything changes and nothing stays the same we all sort of collectively went through that right with the pandemic where a whole world system that we thought you know uh, existed one way changed and we all had to figure out what our lives were going to look like under the new set of circumstances and not always all all bad right i like talking to people on zoom but it's also um it also causes a cascading series of effects, right? Um, some of which are internal and some of which are are external and navigating our way through them is is hard. And, and sometimes it means leaving something behind that was precious to you. And then there is a feeling of, of grief and loss that goes along with that. Yeah. It's complicated. It feels like we're, we're coming to a place where we're searching for new language around grief, because I think for a long time we talked about grief as like the death of, of a person, whereas grief now just seems like it's this low lying hum through so many things as we're grieving, you know, what's happening to the planet and we're mm-hmm. grieving, you know, just so many things seem to, I, I heard the term ambiguous grief recently and, and I mm-hmm. thought that seems to fit so much of what is happening uh, in in our world right now. Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting to me. And like narratively, as someone who tries to structure stories about the world, I'm thinking a lot about it, about it too. And um one of the things that's been coming up for me in teaching is like the kind of um, old Western models of narrative structure that we, many of us learned in high school, the kind of Freitag's pyramid that starts from a stable position, then moves through an inciting incident, and then it goes up like a triangle to a climax, and then down to a denouement, which is, uh, and ends at a, at a, at a new normal, a new place of stable. None of that as a narrative structure to me, seems to speak to the world in which we now live. What we have is a constant churn of instability, a constant churn of climaxes. So maybe we need to think about how we draw new models of narrative that are, you know, they look like an EKG or they look like a series of circles or they look uh, like some completely other, you know, geometry of how we think about what a what a story is. Because as you say, it's all becoming increasingly ambiguous and ongoing. Like it doesn't end. It's not like we're going to return to a situation post-pandemic where the problems have been solved, late capitalism is fine, and we're all good again. Like, that's not the kind of world that we live in. So how do you write into that? How do you write about that? How do you write through that? That's really, those are interesting questions to me. Yeah, and and it seems like it's questions that so many writers are grappling with. Like, I talked to Jordan Abel about Nishka, and it was a similar kind of feeling like, you know, you write this book, but these are questions that are, in a sense, unanswered and will continue mm. to be need an answer as time goes on. So how do yeah. and a book seems like such a fixed thing. So how do you write about these things that really have no end? And yeah, it's really interesting. 
Yeah. Yeah. The book has to end, but yeah, the questions go on. And, and yeah, I was, I was talking to a writer friend uh, uh, the other day about how we never go back and reread our, our older books because they're, they're really just snapshots in time. There's not snapshots of who you are in that moment. And then, you know, if you're any kind of thinking person, hopefully you've moved on and evolved into a different person and that book no longer feels like it's you or even about you in some ways. And so you have to write into the, the next thing and find, and, uh, the next snapshot, the next version of yourself and what you're thinking about the world. Yeah. I wanted to ask about titles for, for short story collections because, I mean, I think titles are hard all the time, but it must feel particularly challenging with a short story collection. So how I know the, the, the title relates to a story in the book, but how did you land on that being the title for the whole collection? Yeah, you know, I'd, I'm... Um, pretty good at titling short stories, but terrible at titling books. And um, I always struggle to um, find something that will bear the weight of a title because it has to carry so much significance, but you don't want it to be, you know, too simple or too messagey, as I was saying uh, earlier. Um, so I had no idea what the title of the collection would be. And then my editor plucked out, you know, we want what we want as um, from a line of dialogue in one of the stories. And then she said, you know, I really think all of these stories are about desire in one way or another. And so this is a title that can speak across, you know, a range of the stories in the book and really ties them together. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and uh, so I, I really love that she did that. And it's, I feel very grateful. I mean, that's what a great editor can can do. They're sort of like a therapist where they, you know, take a bunch of stories and see the patterns in them and kind of reflect that um, back to you. Yeah. Um, my last question for you is what's inspiring the work you're doing these days? Uh, well, as we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, um, it is freakishly warm where I am right now, despite being uh, November. And that uh, is definitely on my mind, as are all things related to climate change, climate anxiety, what kinds of stories can we tell about rapidly changing world that will never go back to the one we used to recognize. So I'm trying to write something about that. I wouldn't say that I know exactly how I'm, I'm going to do that, but I feel like it's, you know, for me, it's the big question of now. And so I'm, I'm writing stories about, um, about land, about climate, about climate uncertainty, and uh, trying to think through the beginnings of a novel about those things as well. That was Alex Olin. Her book of short stories, We Want What We Want, was a finalist for the 2022 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us, of course, on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, I talk to Graham Russell about the book Testimonio, Canadian Mining in the Aftermath of Genocides in Guatemala. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.